This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Progressive Insurance, where customers can save an average of over $750 when they switch and save. Visit Progressive.com to get your car insurance quote. It only takes about seven minutes. National annual average auto insurance savings by new customers surveyed in 2019. Potential savings will vary. Check it out, Progressive.com. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, most everyone wants to live a good, meaningful life, but we don't always know what that means and how to do it. Plenty of modern self-improvement programs claim to point people in the right direction, but many of the best answers were already offered more than 2,000 years ago. My guests have gleaned the cream of this orienting, ancient yet evergreen advice from history's philosophers and shared it in their new book, The Good Life Method, reasoning through the big questions of happiness, faith, and meaning. Their names are Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko, and the professors of philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. Today on the show, Megan and Paul introduce us to the world of virtue ethics. An approach to philosophy that examines the nature of the good life, the values and habits that lead to excellence, and how to find and fulfill your purpose as a human being. We discuss how to seek truth with other people by asking them three levels of what they call strong questions and engaging in civil and fruitful dialogue. We then delve into why your intentions matter and why you should use morally thick language. We also examine the role that work and love has to play in pursuing the good life and how the latter is very much about attention. We end our conversation with how a life of eudaimonia, full human flourishing, requires balancing action with contemplation. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash goodlife. All right, Megan Sullivan, Paul Blaschko, welcome to the show. We're so happy to be here. So you two are philosophy professors at the University of Notre Dame, Go Irish. And you got a book out, The Good Life Method, Reasoning Through the Big Questions of Happiness, Faith, and Meaning. And in this book, you use virtue ethics to help people think about big life issues like love, work, meaning, purpose. But before we get to those topics today, can you give us a big picture idea of what virtue ethics is for those who aren't familiar with it? So I think a lot of people, when they first hear about virtue ethics, what comes to mind are like the Victorian British people who had this like very rigid set of rules for developing and protecting virtue, especially maybe the virtue of vulnerable women. And you think about it as this kind of prim and outdated philosophy. But in fact, what virtue ethics is, is this 2,500-year-old philosophical self-improvement system that a lot of people have thought are at the core of why we care about philosophy and why we care about ethics. And the way I like to explain it to students or to people who I'm just trying to, to get excited about these ideas too is first understanding what the two terms mean. So when we talk about the ethics in virtue ethics, we're not talking about a system of rules like, you know, always raise your pinky when you drink coffee or always drive on the left-hand side of the road. Instead, we're using ethics more like a work ethic, like a set of goals and principles and values that drive you. And the ethics part of that is trying to identify what those goals are that you have in your sites that you find really motivating and also explain your action in the world. And virtue doesn't necessarily mean a system of social mores and customs. Really, the virtues are meant to be the traits and drives and dimensions of your personality that are helping you fulfill your function as a human being, that are helping you be the kind of person that you are aspiring to be or an excellent example of a person. And these will oftentimes be pretty demanding, but really interesting virtues that people can have in many different kinds of lives. Virtues like courage and generosity, uh, deep concern for the truth, 
a deep concern for love and justice and the ability to see and notice it in situations where it might be hard to find what the just or loving action is. And so one of the big things that we try to do in our class and in the book is remind people that they already think of like a virtue ethicist. Like we all, you know, we all, we all struggle with these kinds of questions about what sort of person we want to be and whether we're living a good life every day. We just don't know that there's a name for this kind of philosophy and that there might be a, a more systematic way to approach it. Just to add really briefly on to Megan's answer, which I totally agree with, the way I explain it to my students is, you know, virtue ethics, uh, at least as Aristotle presents it, and he's sort of the, like the spirit animal of our course and, and the book, he shows up all over the place. So, so virtue ethics on the sort of Aristotelian model takes the function or the purpose of human life and it, it makes it central in asking these questions about how we should live and, and, you know, what makes a good life and what kind of goals that we should have. And so, you know, an easy analogy and, and one that I think, you know, a lot of intro philosophy classes will use is think about a knife, you know, what, what's the purpose of a knife? Well, it's to cut things, you know, to, to you know, chop up carrots and I don't know, whatever knives do. Okay. And so what makes a knife excellent? Well, think about that function and think about what it would take for it to do that. Well, I mean, it's gotta be sharp. It's gotta sort of be solid. It's gotta be built out of a certain kind of material. So we take that kind of structure and then we apply it to human life. We ask, what's the purpose of human life? What's our function? And then given that purpose, given that function, what would make us excellent beings of the sort that we actually are, excellent human beings? And I think that's a good description that there's not any hard or fast rules with virtue ethics. I think a lot of people want that with the philosophy. But I think, as you said, Megan, people are doing virtue ethics all the time. Life is sort of messy and they don't know like, well, what's the right thing to do here? And when you're thinking like that, you are being a virtue ethicist. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the really exciting things about coming to study virtue ethics is realizing in a really empowering way how many ethical questions permeate your life. Like the, this idea of what's the most generous or kind way to craft this email that I'm about to send at work? Or what is a really just way of running a meeting? Ethics isn't just this domain of should I launch the nuclear missiles or it, only concerning issues of life and death or things that are in the headlines of the New York Times, but in fact, this realizing the day-to-day habits and activities that we spend time thinking about how we want to do them and what our style is going to be, these can be questions that also are influencing the kind of person that we're becoming in ways that are really the heart of, of all of ethics. Okay, so for Aristotle... Living the good life for humans meant living a life, what he called of eudaimonia or flourishing. So it's like figuring out what the purpose of humans are and then you know, trying to achieve that. So for Aristotle, what did human flourishing look like? Yeah. So one of the really important places to start for Aristotle is this question that, that you know, you've identified. What, what is our function? What is our purpose? And one way that the Greeks and the, and the ancient philosophers like to approach this question is to ask, you know, what sets us apart from every other kind of creature, every other kind of being? And even just sort of, you know, reflecting on this question, I think one property that comes to mind immediately is, well, we can reason, we can reflect on things, we can use that to guide our lives and to, to shape the decisions that we're making. So for Aristotle, really crucially, a life of flourishing, a life where you're achieving what he calls eudaimonia, which is, you know, sometimes just translated happiness, sometimes translated flourishing, but a life that looks like that is going to be one where you're using that distinctively human capacity to reflect on and make decisions about what you think constitutes a good life. So there's no, he doesn't have like a set thing like, well, you are 
you are living a flourishing life if you do X, X, X. As long as you're just thinking and reasoning about your life, is that for Aristotle a, a good life? Yeah, I think this is tricky. And, and Megan, maybe you've got thoughts here. I mean, it's tricky in the sense that Aristotle certainly thinks there are essential goods. There are elements that every good life is going to share, right? He says in the Nicomachean Ethics, you know, a man would not choose to live if he didn't have friends, even if he had every other good thing in life, right? So friendship, companionship, this is essential to our flourishing, right? And it's something that we can discover through reason. And he gives us arguments as to why this is the case. And there are other things like this. So there are certain, you know, certain things that he thinks every good life is going to have, but he's not really prescriptive about exactly what that'll look like, right? It's not like, you know, a good life is going to follow a template or there's a rule that you can use to just say like, okay, in this situation, you know, here are the considerations and boom, like here's the output. I mean, is that fair, Megan? Yeah, I think one of this is one of the things that philosophers love and hate about Aristotle as the founder of virtue ethics. On the love side, he he spends a lot of time in his book about happiness and human flourishing, the Nicomachean Ethics, going through specific virtues like courage or prudence and telling you like here's how to determine whether or not you're acting courageously when you get confused. Like courage is going to be the mean, for instance, between being a coward and being reckless. And he tries to give you guidance, but he also keeps reiterating that how courage manifests in your particular life and whether or not you're truly being courageous or being reckless or being cowardly is going to depend on really specific features of your situation and who you are. And, and this should make sense to us, right? Like courage for a Spartan Hewlett is going to look so different than courage for a 2022 American philosophy professor. For the Hewlett, it might mean like rushing into battle to save his brother for a 2022 philosophy professor, courage might mean going on a national podcast and trying to answer philosophy questions, right? Like, it's just like the, the kinds of situations that we're in are going to manifest what's really excellent about human lives in really different ways. One of the really frustrating parts of Aristotle for a lot of philosophers and philosophy students is he faces this question about how you can know whether you've got the right kind of courage for your particular situation or the right kind of generosity for your really particular situation if if there's no hard and fast rule book and he the best he can tell us on this is that in the course of trying to develop a good life you develop this other virtue called phrenesis or practical wisdom which is basically the virtue of knowing what to do. And people find this really frustrating because this, like, it just seems to not answer any of our questions anymore. Like what, what would a good person do at this faculty meeting tomorrow? Or how would a good person parent their child when the new iPhone comes online? And the best the Aristotelian can say is hopefully you've gotten to this point in your life where you also have this virtue of discernment and judgment, which can tell you what all the other virtues are going to look like in your own particular circumstances. And then, you know, the Aristotle and the virtue ethicists tend to get this question of like, well, how do I know if I've got that virtue? And that's why that's why this debate has raged on and on. No, we've had Barry Schwartz on the podcast talk about uh, his book, Practical Wisdom, where he talks about phronesis. And yeah, it is frustrating because it's like, well, how do you how do you know what's you're doing? It's like, well, you just you know, Aristotle says, well, you develop it like a carpenter learns how to do carpentry. You have to do it, and by yeah. doing it, you learn it. And there's nothing. There's no rules. Well, this is you follow this, and you are exercising phronesis. Like, well, no, you just kind of you kind of know. I certainly find this, I, I found it very frustrating as an undergraduate, like learning Aristotle. I, I just kept thinking, yeah, but what's, 
what's the answer? Like, just tell me, like, you know, how do I figure out what to do? I find as I sort of go through life and, and, you know, go through different changes, like having kids or, you know, trying to figure out a job, I find that the picture actually makes a lot more sense to me. So one thing that Aristotle cares a lot about is, is that we're comparing our theory that we're, you know, reflecting and, and sort of coming up with theories about the world, but that we're constantly comparing that with the experience of living and that we use that experience sometimes to falsify the theory to say, you know what, I really thought, you know, I, I had a good grasp on uh, you know, theoretically how to make these decisions, but turns out I don't. In my case, you know, as a parent having kids, I read all the books about like, you know, how do you raise your kids and what are the, you know, the one, two, three rule, all these things. And then the minute that you actually have kids and you find yourself in that situation, it's a lot more like the kind of activities you were referencing a second ago, like carpentry or, or you know, some complex activity that you're just kind of sorting through and figuring out as you go. And it doesn't mean that there's no sort of better or worse way to do it. It just means that, you know, the activity itself is more complex than we can sort of, you know, boil down uh, into a simple kind of two or three part rule-based theory. Uh, so I don't know. I, I find this as I get older, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not that old, but as I get older, this sort of picture makes more and more sense to me. One criticism I've, I've seen levied at virtue ethics is that it can be relativistic, Right. See, like you were saying, Megan, what, what's courage for a, a, a Spartan? Well, it's going to be different for someone living in the, a philosophy professor in 2022. It's just, you know, it's going to change depending on the, the person. So what would be the response to that? It depends a little bit on what you mean by relativism. This is definitely, this is a live, like scholarly nerdy philosophy debate right now is how much Aristotle fits into our current categories of relativism or absolutism. When I think of moral relativists I, or relativists about the good life, I think about folks who think that whatever view you currently have about your particular life right now has got to be like, is that's all there is to the truth about the good life. So you ask me, Megan, do you think that you are a happy philosopher in the year 2022? If I say, yes, I am then that's the correct answer. If I say, no, I'm not, that's also the correct answer. Like whatever kind of, however I judge my particular situation is all there is to the truth of the matter. If that's how we understand relativism and likewise for Paul, like it's just it, totally the truth about whether or not you are doing well or living the good life just depends on your particular perspective. That's what I mean by relativism. Aristotle is definitely not a relativist. Because Aristotle and, and most virtue ethicists think that you could be mistaken about whether or not you are living the good life. It's, it's not just a matter of how you feel or how you judge your particular life at a particular moment. In fact, we know on reflection that there are periods of our life when we thought things were going really well. And in fact, objectively speaking, they weren't. We thought we were being courageous, but in fact, we were making a really reckless decision. And so if you think that believing that there are some objective standards for happiness or goals that we really have to be working intellectually to get in our sights and things, questions we should be asking ourselves about whether or not we're doing it right, then virtue ethicist says, uh, absolutely. Aristotle uses this metaphor that I really love in the Nicomachean Ethics, where he says, we're like archers when it comes to happiness, and we're always trying to get the goal in our sights. And it would be so much easier to make all of these other decisions in our lives if we could finally just like nail down what the goal is that we're shooting at. But in fact, we spend so much of our lives really just trying to figure out what the goal is and wondering what it is. If you take that kind of goal, like shooting a, an arrow at a target metaphor seriously, 
you got to believe that there's a target out there that you could, that's outside of you that you could get your head around. And so for these reasons, I think that at least the modern idea of relativism doesn't really capture what the kind of advice that somebody like Aristotle is giving us. Well, let's dig into how do you figure out what a flourishing life is for you? Because you have a whole chapter to that. And you argue, you both argue that you need, in order to figure that out, you have to start asking yourself and other people too, what you call strong questions. What are strong questions? Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the the key features of strong questions is that they're genuinely questions. Uh, So in the book, you know, one of the distinctions that we make is between what we call prosecutor questions and dinner party questions. So I can certainly ask somebody what looks like a question, but really in an attempt just to get them on the record. I mean, this, you know, happens sometimes, unfortunately, like with my family at, at, at holidays, I'll say like, you know, mom, you know, you, you sent me this article about vaccines. Like, you know, do you really think, you know, and at, it sounds like I'm a prosecutor. It sounds like I'm, you know, putting her on the stand and for the record, I want her to say something so that, you know, I can be outraged or so that other people can kind of jump in and then, you know, argue. On the other hand, you know, there's a way of questioning and inquiring where you're genuinely curious, where your motivation is a pursuit of the truth and a pursuit of the truth with somebody else, right? Like we can, you know, think all day and sort of bang our heads against the wall, but there's something really powerful about, you know, drawing on the experience and expertise of someone else. So if, if you know, you find yourself in this uh, scenario where you're, you're tempted to ask one of these prosecutorial questions, one of the, you know, bits of advice that we have in the book is, you know, see if you can back up and, and ask a question that comes out of some genuine curiosity. And it's not always possible. Like you might just find that the topic is too sort of psychologically hot. Like you just can't get yourself into that mode. But oftentimes, you know, you can, you, you can ask questions like, look, in your experience, like what, what are the sort of things that, that have shaped your thinking on, you know, whatever the topic is. And when you're, when you're motivated by that genuine sort of pursuit of the truth, that genuine curiosity, we find, you know, the results are better, not just because the relationships are, are preserved and are better. And, and, you know, this is a more virtuous way of proceeding, but you're surprised. You get answers that, you know, can unseat assumptions that you held and, and that can actually push you in the direction of the truth about some issue that you, you might genuinely care about, might like change the way that you think about, you know, some practical issue in your life. No, I like how you, you break down those three types of questions level of questions you can go through when you're trying to do this type of strong questioning. The first one is a starting point question where you're having a discussion with somebody or even with yourself, right? When you're trying to figure out what you believe about something. It, you ask, well, when did you first start thinking this way about that topic? Was there a moment? And that's a conversation. It's like completely neutral. You're not, you're not trying, you're not doing that prosecution. You're just, you're just genuinely curious. The next one is a, a philosophical goal question. What would that look like? What's a philosophical goal question after you've done that starting point question? I think, you know, like picking a topic might be helpful here. So, you know, with respect to work, say, you can ask somebody, what role do you want work to play in your life? Is work a source of meaning for you? Is it a source of ultimate meaning? Or is it good because it gets you something else? Like, is your work something that you do because, you know, you've got a family to feed and you, you really want your focus and attention to be on your family. So like, what is it that you're really aiming at? What is it that sort of provides that, ult- that more ultimate meaning versus the sort of instrumental value in your life? So that's, I mean, that's the question that leaps to my mind immediately. Okay. And so you're, you're trying to figure, you're trying to figure out like why, it, what, what the goal you're trying to achieve with that. And then the next question to ask is the means question. What's a means question? 
Yeah. So how are you going to get from here to there, right? So from your starting point, so suppose you know your starting point is, I feel like I work too much or I feel like I work too little, right? And I'm, I'm not sure what to do about that. Okay. Now, now, given that my goal is you know, to make sure that my, my work is not becoming the source of ultimate meaning, rather it's, it's sort of serving this greater good in, in my life, what's going to take me from that starting point to that goal? Does it mean you know, shifting uh, like the kind of work that I'm doing or shifting the way that I think about the work that I'm doing? Yeah, it's just sort of a, an intermediate, like what are the steps that I have to take to you know, make sure that my philosophical life is well aligned? And how do you have these discussions, particularly with someone else, without it delving into emotive shouting? So this is something uh, <laughs> your colleague, Alistair McIntyre, uh, wrote about in After Virtue. He talked about, kind of makes this diagnosis, why does, why does moral debate seem so shrill in the modern age? And he makes this case, well, people are on different pages. They see the world differently. And so the only thing they turn to is just shouting. And I think everyone's experienced that, particularly online. So how can you have these you know, really important discussions without it devolving to that? Here's where I think that if you're concerned with living a philosophical life, and we, we argue in the book that one of the first virtues you should develop a concern for in your pursuit of the good life is concern for the truth. Like just wanting to be somebody that actually cares about the truth including the truth about other people, it's really important when you decide you're going to have a hard conversation about politics or religion or about whether you should be a vegetarian or whether somebody's making a mistake to quit their job. Before you get into this with somebody who you're likely to disagree with, first, you have to check your own intentions. So are you intending to have an argument with them, in which case you might be really effective at provoking the argument? And I suspect a lot of quote unquote ethicists find themselves constantly in arguments because they go looking for them. (laughs) But if you really come into it with a spirit of humility and thinking like, I really just want to know the truth about how we should be living together in insert the office, our school system right now, our country. I, I want to know the truth about this question. First, you've kind of checked your intentions. And then the next thing you need to do is make sure you've got enough of the other virtues growing in your life and in this relationship to be able to signal that you care about the truth. The one of the things that interesting that's interesting about the Greek virtue ethicists like Plato and Aristotle is they think you can't just have one virtue in isolation. If I want to have a hard conversation with Paul or with my neighbor about a political question, but I really want to demonstrate concern for the truth. I also have to show care and concern for Paul. I have to show a willingness to listen to him. I have to be able to register a certain amount of humility and self-understanding about my own political views, but also courage to defend things that, that might be very controversial. It requires a great deal of skill and sophistication really fast. And I think just chalking this up to saying, well, the fact that we're having debates on Facebook is the reason we can't talk to each other anymore. Or the fact that the political parties have this really, really contingent way that they're set up right now means that we just can't talk to each other anymore. I think that doesn't do justice to the fact that we know from 2,500 years of philosophy that folks have always had a a somewhat difficult time having philosophical conversations, have thought that they had to work on it a little bit. But if they were willing to put in the effort and try to develop those antecedent virtues in themselves and in their relationships – it results in magic. I mean, you get the enlightenment out of those kinds of relationships. You get the platonic dialogues out of Socrates' friendships and pursuit of virtue. 
And so, what, okay, so you check yourself, and then I guess you just have to, when you're chilling with someone else, you're trying, you're kind of filling them out, and maybe if they're putting up, they've got that, you know, they're just kind of putting up a fight, they put up that that shield. Do you just disengage or just keep trying to show uh, through example? I, I, I'm not trying to attack you. Like, how do how do you deal with that? Like, again, like this is a virtue you have to develop, a skill you have to develop. Well, your experience, how do you help other people? You know, kind of play play catch with you with this debate. One thing, I've been thinking about this a lot because obviously we live in a time of many fraught philosophical conversations. I was having one just yesterday with a colleague who really disagrees with me politically. And I was reminded of another thing Aristotle says, one swallow does not make a spring. Developing and showing virtue, showing that you really care about somebody else, kind of wanting to pursue the truth on a question with somebody else it's probably not going to happen over a single coffee or a single well-executed social media encounter. It's the kind of thing that if they're, if we're going to make a difference in each other's lives, if we're going to help guide each other out of our various caves, it's going to happen over time, the way all virtues are built up and manifest over time. It's going to be repeated investment, though. It's probably going to be a little period of frustration when we feel like we're not making any progress. And what a virtuous person will do is play a long game in these kinds of discussions and modes of inquiry. Whereas somebody who's like a sophist or somebody who only cares about immediate results might do whatever it takes to, to get somebody to change their mind. I think probably virtuous people don't change their minds super quickly because a lot of times their beliefs and philosophical attitudes are the sorts of things that have grown up along with the kind of person that they've been trying to make themselves into. Okay, so I guess the, the key there, so the takeaway there, be open to the truth, be curious, and again, if, keep using your reasoning. Aristotle says, as long as you, you're using your reasoning to figure that out, you're on the right track. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think there are also a lot of opportunities in dialogue with people to demonstrate virtues. And some of the key virtues here, you know, just, just manifesting a, a genuine concern for the truth you know, is going to lead you to sometimes admit like that you don't know everything in a particular conversation. I found that, that this is one of the most powerful tools in my conversations with my mom. This is a, an example we use in the book, but it's just a real life example for me. My mom and I, like we agree about you know some things, we disagree about a ton of things, and we love debating. We love dialoguing. We love talking about this stuff because it, you know, it sort of really, it means a lot to us. And, you know, I notice a, a difference in the conversations that, you know, involve each of us taking a step back and saying, you know, I hadn't actually thought about that. I'm not sure. Or you, you might be right about that. And when one person is able to do that and just sort of demonstrate, like, look, I care more about the truth and I care more about both of us getting to the truth than I do about defeating you or about protecting some part of my identity. I find that's a really powerful thing. Now, like Megan mentions, this is something that that really is most likely to happen, most natural in the context of a personal relationship. So I find yeah, I've, I've become more selective over time in, in the kind of engagement that I'm willing to, to do on the internet, you know, just arguing with people on Facebook or comments or whatever. But I don't think it's impossible. You know, I think especially if you have some pre-existing relationship or if you're able to build that up over time with with you know friends online or whatever, just being willing to say, yeah, I don't I don't know about that. Or, you know, that's a really interesting perspective that you're bringing. I've never heard anybody say something like that. Tell me where it comes from. Like g- give me some background here. Give me some context. I think those those can really diffuse some of the tension and some of the sort of defensiveness that we bring to a lot of these conversations. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. 
According to the latest research, 90% of employers plan to make enhancing the employee experience a top priority in 2022. After all, a happy workplace is key to attracting and keeping great employees. And if you need to add more employees to your team, there is ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's matching technology helps you find the right people for your roles fast. And right now you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this address, ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter uses its powerful technology to find and match the right candidates up with your job. Then it proactively presents these candidates to you. You can easily review these recommended candidates and invite your top choices to apply for your job, which encourages them to apply faster. ZipRecruiter's technology is so effective that four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Find the right employees for your workplace at ZipRecruiter. Try it for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness, M-A-N-L-I-N-E-S-S. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Peloton is pushing you further with so much new on the Peloton bike and the Peloton Bike Plus. New classes, new music, new ways to keep your workouts fun and motivating. Peloton is stepping into the ring with its newest discipline, boxing, and no gloves are needed. Discover a fast, furious, and fun workout with Peloton instructors in your corner. Even if you've never boxed before, these classes will have you working up a sweat while working on the fundamentals of form, footwork, and fun combos that will keep you on your toes. Plus, Peloton is adding fun new artist series classes. Work out the music of a single artist for an entire class, from your favorite hits to the deep cuts. Peloton has a workout for every goal, day, and mood. Stay motivated while having fun with bike workouts, yoga, meditation, dance, cardio, and more. I've used the Peloton Bike Plus. It's a cool thing. My favorite workouts are the ones where they combine the biking with the boot camp style stuff. So you're doing, getting off, doing some dumbbell work. A lot of fun. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. That's O-N-E-P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com. OnePeloton.com. Check it out today. And now back to the show. Okay. So one of the part of living a flourishing life is doing the morally right thing. And that can be hard to figure out what the morally right thing to do in certain situations is. And you look at other schools of philosophy to figure out, well, how do they, how do other philosophies determine what's the morally right thing to do? And you look at one school called consequentialism to figure out what the morally right thing to do. So how does consequentialism determine morality? And then why do you think it's lacking? Yeah. So really broadly, consequentialists focus on the consequences of your action in trying to figure out whether or not that action is good, right? It's a really simplistic way to put it, but you know, if you're if you're making a decision about, you know, whether it's okay in war to bomb a certain city, you're asking, well, okay, what are the consequences? Are they overall going to be better or worse if we do this versus if we don't do it or if we do it, you know, in a more targeted way or something like that? So again, a real emphasis on the consequences versus paying a lot of attention to the intentions and the motivation behind a particular action. Why is it that you're performing an action? You know, Now, we have a couple of chapters where we take consequentialism and, and compare it to virtue ethics and where we think you know, virtue ethics really has an advantage, kind of gives us thinking about our lives, our inner lives, our intentions that are really important. Uh, so let me just give you one example. In the chapter on responsibility, there's a really famous case that you've probably come across if you've you know read about philosophy or if you've seen The Good Place or, or any of these sort of things. It's called the trolley problem. And the idea is you know, you're standing next to a trolley track. The trolley is, is hurtling down the track and there are several people who are on the track. You can flip a switch and change it so that it hits one person rather than say five people. The question is, you know, should you flip this switch? And 
one thing that's really interesting is that as you change the details in the trolley problem, people's moral intuitions change, like whether or not they think you should flip the switch changes. So in the classic example, a lot of people say, yeah, of course, flip the switch, right? Like one person dead is a better consequence than five people that of course you should flip the switch. But then, you know, researchers will ask people, okay, well, what if, you know, you have to push a person onto the track to stop the trolley in order to prevent five people from being killed? Now, you know, far fewer people will say, yeah, you should definitely do that. And if you're a consequentialist, this is just manifest bias and irrationality, right? You think like the consequences are exactly the same. It's just that, you know, when you get into the messy details, people aren't always willing to do what they reflectively know is, is the morally right thing to do. Virtue ethicists see things differently, right? They think, look, uh, a lot of times the personal details, the sort of the really particular facts of a situation are going to make a huge difference as to whether or not your action is right or wrong. But it's not that like consequences don't matter in virtue ethics, right? So it's not just intention because if it was that, it could be like, well, people intend to do helpful things all the time that end up hurting people. I, I don't think Aristotle would be like, well, that was he was virtuous because he had right intentions. Am, am I correct on that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The consequences have to come in both because, you know, a reasonable person is going to be able to foresee characteristic consequences of certain kinds of actions. And so, yeah, you've certainly got to take those into account. You know, you can't just say like, well, my intention's good. Like I'm going to throw this, you know, baseball at somebody's face. My intention is just to like, you know, give them a baseball. It's like, it doesn't work that way, right? So there's this kind of give and take where figuring out the accurate description of your action, it's actually a really complex process. It involves this kind of phronesis or this practical wisdom uh, that we were talking about earlier. So absolutely, the intention or the the consequences are going to matter. It's just that they're not the only thing that matters or they're not sort of the primary thing that matters for the virtue ethicist. And there's a certain kind of consequence that the virtue ethicists are aiming at that the consequentialists are not. So the consequentialists want to pump good consequences out into the world, lives saved or happiness maximized. The virtue ethicist has a goal in mind, something that they're targeting with their decisions and intentions and actions, namely caring for their soul and developing, finding eudaimonia. So we can absolutely criticize people for not intending good enough things. If I'm talking to my youngest brother who's home from college and I ask him what he plans to do with his degree next year and he says, eh, I'm really just like intending to play video games for the next decade. It's, you know, it's not a malicious intention, but it's not a good enough intention for him to be living a good life or fulfilling, to be like living up to his uh, moral potential. And it's totally the kind of intention that could come in for criticism for just being unambitious. No, and this this uh, the section on responsibility and agency really got me thinking about you know my own how, how I think about myself as a moral agent because it forces you to think like am I as good as I really think I am? And it could be uh, I I do the things I do because not because I intended it, but it just sort of like it just happened that way. It's like moral luck, you know. I, I haven't had to face any really big moral ethical dilemmas, but I say, well, you know, I'm a good person, but I've never really had to. Do, you know what I'm saying? Like I didn't have to like, there was like no decision on that on my part to be a good person, if that makes sense. Yeah, at least at least two really important issues that you're raising here. One is, you know, having the self-knowledge, like knowing like whether you actually have the virtues, that's really hard, right? And a lot of times we don't know or we can't know unless our virtues have been tested in some significant way. And, and uh, I don't know, I think there's a lot of literature, there are a lot of great movies or, or novels written about this question. You know, somebody's tested 
And their whole life is upended because they realize like, gosh, I thought I was a courageous person. And when the moment came to act, I, I couldn't do it. And so how, how do I reconcile my view of myself? Another really important issue that you bring up and that we talk a little bit about in the book in, in our class that, that the book is based on is this question of how our environment and how our situation impacts our actions, the things that we do. There's you know a whole field now in philosophy devoted to asking this question. You know, it's often called situationism. And you know, there, there's empirical evidence that that our situation, the environment that we you know partly create and help create around ourselves, but also that we just find ourselves in, it has a huge impact on what we end up doing. Now that's I don't know, I think uh, an interesting wrinkle for the virtue ethicist and one that Aristotle cared a lot about. I mean, he he thought a lot about the importance of community, you know, making sure that you're not in a, a sort of morally corrupt environment was was really important, but you know, also just creating the kind of community that enables virtue and enables uh, people to act virtuously was really important. But I think I think both those issues are are super important. And you know, if you're coming from the virtue ethics point of view, they're things that you know merit a lot of uh, reflection. It reminded me of a quote from Nietzsche, who I've heard like I think Robert Solomon. He's like a Nietzsche expert, described Nietzsche as sort of kind of a virtue ethicist in some ways. Oh, yeah. And he said this, he said, Verily, I have often laughed at the weaklings who thought themselves good because they had no claws. And it's like, you were so mean. Yeah, Sorry, it's, mean, it's mean, but it, it really, it's kind of, it can be convicting. It's like, I yeah. think I'm a really good person, but like, is it just, is it because I just, you know, I just kind of go with the flow and I'm a real, you know, laid back guy? Is that why I'm a good guy? So, and, and this gets to the point you make the argument you, you, you challenge people to do is to come up, you know, develop some morally thick stories about yourself, like ethically thick stories about yourself. What do you mean by that? I'll share here. There, there's been, we, we try really hard to show in this book something that Paul and I both believe, which is that this high level philosophical advice can also be deeply practical and can affect our 21st century lives. And over the last year, I've thought a lot about this responsibility chapter and what it means to try to share your moral intentions and your moral stories with other people. And I've really tried to make it a practice when I think I screwed something up or I've hurt somebody, uh, which only happens in kind of small, clawless ways in my own boring life. But but tried to make a practice of being really explicit of saying like, um, here's where I'm taking responsibility. This is where I think I did something cruel. And like using the morally thick terms, like this was cruel or that was a bit cowardly or that was rash in an apology, either like verbally or... Uh, in an email. And I, one thing I've noticed is starting to talk about myself using more morally rich vocabulary is disarming to other people. Like we're just not used to hearing other people. We're used to people saying like, I'm sorry. And we're used to people saying like, you know, they're good and I'm bad or I'm good and they're bad is much more likely. Like really thin moral concepts that just try to judge like thumbs up, thumbs down. People I've, I've found, especially as I've tried to build out this practice in my day-to-day life, get a little bit more freaked out when you send them an email being like, I think it was uh, unjust for me to not call on you when you had a question at that meeting last week. Notice they don't quite know what to do with you. And I think maybe that is, uh, 
is a good thing. Like learning how to talk about ourselves and our moral lives in new ways opens up new kinds of conversations that might, you know, weird people out in our social lives right now, but also open up new opportunities for us to talk about things that don't seem like they're right or that we want to improve. That's a good point. I think one of the points that Alistair McIntyre makes in After Virtue is that, yeah, you're right. People, they don't know how to speak in a moral language. So it weirds them out when people do. Yeah. And so I guess one way to counter that is just start doing it with yourself. And people be like, it'll like scratch an itch that people didn't know they had. I think that's right. I think one other thing that I, I love on this point from the McIntyre book is uh, the importance of stories like, you know, Megan, Megan's talking about and making sure that those stories are, are accurate. So we tell stories all the time that either excuse or empower us. I use the simple example with my students. You know, I show up late at a meeting and I say, ah, gosh, like the traffic was so terrible. And in doing that, I'm excusing myself, right? Like I'm refusing to take responsibility. Maybe rightly so. Maybe the traffic was terrible and it was unpredictable. But another way I could go is, you know, I could could say, look, I didn't care enough to predict how bad the traffic was going to be. I, I didn't sort of get up early enough or whatever it might be. And you know, if that's the true story, it's really important that we're able to tell it and that we're able to tell it about ourselves. And, and it requires all kinds of virtues and you know, self-knowledge and vulnerability. So I think that's that's another way in which, you know, the advice that we even get from, from After Virtue, which is that, you know, we've got to be able to tell these narratives about our lives and big picture narratives about our life stories, but also these kind of small interpersonal stories that we tell to each other. I mean, I I think that's absolutely crucial for the moral life. Yeah. So you take Richard Feynman's advice, don't fool yourself, but always be on the lookout. Always be aware that you're probably trying to fool yourself. Uh, So you always have to be on guard of that. Okay. So I try to go for an accurate representation of your, of your moral life, maybe in some instances, you have to take less credit for your vices. I think some people are just really hard on themselves. But I think I think the, the thing that's probably the hardest is taking less credit maybe for the good you do. I think I think a lot of people think they're better than they really are. But not always. But I, I think just it's always asking yourself those questions. You also devote a chapter to our relationship with work. What can virtue ethics teach us about our work life or help us have a better work life? Oh, this is a this is a great question and one that I'm thinking about a ton right now. So let me just give one example in which I think uh, philosophers can really help in a practical way with the way that we think about work in our lives. So, so Aristotle, you know, he talks about how action, just doing things in the world, producing things, how that is a source of meaning. Right? We go out and we we sort of choose our ends and we act toward those ends. And so we can get really caught up in you know this active life in making sure that we're busy and, and and sort of investing a lot in our achievements at work. But one thing that Aristotle really encourages us to do is, is to think about the why behind any particular action that we're doing, because he thinks the more you think about the reasoning, the more you're going to realize you know everything you do ultimately aims. You know, this goes all the way back to the beginning of the conversation. It ultimately aims at eudaimonia, or aims at flourishing. And sometimes in the moment, you know, if you're working really hard on on you know a bunch of projects, you can lose sight of that. And so, so here's you know a quick example that I ask my students. I say, look, you know, why are you in college right now? And they say, well, because you know, we want to get jobs. And you say, well, why do you want to get a job? And you say, well, because I want money. And you say, well, why do you want money? Right? You can go back all the way with this chain of reasoning, and Aristotle thinks. If you end up 
at a place where you can sort of point out, well, this is the good thing that all of those efforts are going to serve, then you're, you're in a good way. Right. But if you, you know, and this happens to me all the time, if you, if you realize like, you know, gosh, I I'm really just doing all of these things because it feels meaningful. It, it sort of fulfills this kind of desire, this need that I have, but it's coming at the expense of, you know, these other good things in my life that I really should be paying more attention to that he thinks, okay, that chain of reasoning, it's sort of vain and empty. And you've got to make sure that, you know, you're not being distracted by this life of action from what really matters, from what really counts. So that's, that's, you know, that's just one sort of way in which this distinction, I think, can help us sort out what's actually essential in the work that we're doing from what just feels essential or feels really meaningful. But I think there's, yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of philosophers who who help us think about these exact kind of issues. I think uh, something we we talk about this in the book, and I've thought about it a lot as we've read all these news stories recently about people changing jobs and the Great Resignation. We live in a version of capitalism where a lot of really well-meaning workplaces claim to satisfy our deepest philosophical needs. So, like the case study we use in the book is Airbnb really selling their employees on this idea that they're a family. And it turns out that when the first wave of the pandemic hit and Airbnb had to lay off a bunch of workers, they felt really alienated as a result because family members usually don't fire other family members. And so they had this like whiplash of the, they had this one goal and kind of identity in mind, but it didn't feel like at the end of the day, it was real or sustainable. I think we we all want to be part of wonderful workplaces, but understanding the distinctive kinds of common goods that a workplace can promote or not, which kinds of work maybe will never have a common good behind it, or which kinds of goods a workplace can supply and which other goods we need to get elsewhere in our lives, those are really live questions, especially for folks who are just in the middle or at the beginnings of their careers right now. So one of the things we try to do in the book is show how these questions about good work are at their root questions about how we pursue the good life in common and what the limits of it are based on the kind of organization that that we're finding ourselves a part of. So it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, like Aristotle would say work is a means. So don't confuse the means for it. And a lot of people do that. They think, well, work is the thing supposed to give me meaning. And Aristotle, well, it could be part of that, but it's not the thing. I think that's part of it, though. I don't know. If, if work, it depends probably on what you mean by work. But if you think of your work as a place where you have some of your most important relationships, like with your coworkers, if you're a teacher with some of your students, and it's a place where you allocate a certain amount of your time, it might, it might be that you do it in order to get money, to, like for, for totally instrumental ends, to get money in order to support other aspects of your good life. But for most people, and Paul and I talk about this in the book, it's more mixed up. There's a dimension of friendship and personal development that's really important at work alongside earning money. And some of those same virtues are going to be really important in family life and spending money and consumerism might be a really important part of your family life as well. The lines get blurred really quickly, which means that you've got to ask the same questions about happiness and personal development and ethics in all of the different worlds. There's never going to be this just clean break between your life life and your work life. So how how do you navigate? Let's say you're someone is listening and they're like, man, my job is burning me out. It's just grinding me down. But there's parts of it that I like. I like uh, there's coworkers I like, and uh, I like that allows me to you know live near my family. What is virtue? How do you 
how do you untangle all that? I think one question there, you know, there's going to be a bunch of questions here. First is just empathizing with folks. Oftentimes, not just in our work communities, but in our families and in our political communities, it's not always kumbaya. And we know that working on the common good together in the different places we find ourselves is sometimes going to be a real slog. Uh, And a lot of people, I think, are discovering that as they've gone back to work. But I think one question to ask folks is if they can take a step back and realize there's how they're feeling about their work right now, which is almost certainly influenced by the very weird conditions in which a lot of us are working right now. But that's the question of how you feel about happiness. What about the philosophical question? What kind of person is this investment making you into? How are, are you developing virtues in your workplace? Are you developing capacities or forms of agency that are enabling you in other parts of your life to grow and to pursue eudaimonia? If the answer to those questions are no, probably you need to really rethink how you're making this huge investment in your life. But if these answers to those questions are yes, kind of, which I think for a lot of us it is, they realize like, you know, I, I, I'll think, I'll take a concrete case study. My mom, she's a receptionist in a dental office. Her job is like super hard. She's yelling at people to wear face masks all day. She's filling out healthcare billing reports. She does not have the kind of job that causes her to feel happiness every single minute of the workday, but she loves her job and finds it quite meaningful. And if you ask her why, it's because she um, has this morally thick story that's true in her mind about how When she does her job really well, it helps people get dental care that they really need, and that's meaningful for her. She really loves her coworkers, and she likes celebrating their birthdays and observing life with them. When they have babies, the whole family gets together in the office and celebrates that life together. Work is a place where she develops these really and expresses these really important social virtues. At the end of the day, you know, does she think that? Her particular work would be irreplaceable by really smart dental billing AI 20 years from now? No, definitely not. But she also thinks that that's she doesn't need that kind of like permanence or all-encompassing nature of work for it to be meaningful. All she needs is those two true stories about helping people get their cavities filled and the particular people in her office that she loves and gets to care for when she's on her game at work. Okay, so another section you devote to is about love. And you all make the case that you know, we often think of love as a, as a verb, right? It's action. And Aristotle would say, yeah, it's, you know, there, there is a part of that where it's action-oriented. But you also say that the love is about attention. What do you mean by that? So one another virtue at this, we haven't talked about this guy so much, um, but he's really important to, to us both in our teaching and in the book is Plato, who thinks that there's a very important part of the good life that involves just seeing things the right way. He thinks about it like, you know, seeing the sunlight when you get out of the cave, seeing the form of the good and really understanding it. It's very visual, perceptual um, bit of the, the human aspiration that we get from Plato. And in the love book, we introduce readers to a Neoplatonist philosopher, Iris Murdoch, who thinks that the essence of love in the good life is not what you think, what we oftentimes think it is. We oftentimes think that loving other people is doing things to them or for them. So giving them hugs or throwing them birthday parties or marrying them, building our entire lives around them. These are all actions. 
Murdoch thinks that it's, you know, that's an important part of the ways that we care for other people, but that's not all of it. A really important part and dimension of love is just how we see other people in our mind's eye. And she gives some really interesting cases about the kind of work that we can do in our inner lives to become more loving and to become more attentive to other people and their good lives. And this is an ancient idea. So the the ancient Greek and Roman philosophers talk about our friends and the people that we love as our second selves, as people whose, um, whose good lives and stories and intentions are so important to us that we feel as though their lives are joined with our own, even if we can't make decisions and direct their lives. One of the things we try to do in the book is, one, just introduce these ideas, which can seem a little mystical at first. This is totally true of Plato's philosophy. It can seem a little, a little mystic. But actually, once you start to think about it in terms of practices for how you think about people in your life, you realize that it's deepening how you appreciate them and how you're able to access some of the goods of love and friendship in your life. Okay, so how do you develop that attention, that that sort of loving attention? One thing I love about Iris Murdoch is she gives this really simple habit that at least strikes me as being very effective. She talks about this example of a mother whose son has just gotten married to this woman. And this mother doesn't like her daughter-in-law. She doesn't know what it is. There's just something about this young woman that her son married that she just like doesn't find her attractive or compelling or interesting at all. But this mother also really cares about her relationship with her son. So she's always super polite to this daughter-in-law. She's very kind and tries very, very hard to like welcome her into family life. The mother-in-law realizes that this isn't enough. And so Iris Murdoch says she develops this practice where she causes herself to keep looking again at this woman. Basically, every time she starts to have this thought of like, oh, Sheila, Sheila's so awful. I can't believe we have to have dinner with Sheila again. She hits pause and says, I see her that way. I know I see her that way, but maybe the problem is with me. Maybe I'm petty and small-minded. And in fact, I should look at her again. And try again to see what's really beautiful about her and the way that my son sees her. And Murdoch says, over time, this woman, as a result of this practice, might come to see her daughter-in-law in a new way, to pay attention to her and appreciate her in a new way. And Murdoch thinks that's growing in love. Like she's done this really important thing in her mental life to help her grow as a kind of person who's able to love this daughter-in-law, somebody that's going to become an important relationship to her going forward. And so that simple, even that simple practice of just being able to notice the, the maybe short-sighted or, or, or false stories that internally we tell ourselves about other people and then trying really hard to look and, and find, find the deeper truth or find the deeper value in there. I think that that's a, a, a very important virtue for love. And so this goes back to the idea that intentions matter in virtue ethics, right? You can't just, you don't just treat your daughter-in-law well, because you're, you're, you're duty bound. Cause you can do that and be like, ah, oh, geez, I hate this, you know, whatever. Yeah. But virtue has to say, no, you also have to, the intention behind that act also has to be loving as well. Yeah. And it also is a way of seeing how the intentions of the other person, like the inner life, the richness of that inner life can really impact how you relate to them. Right. So another practice that we recommend in that chapter for cultivating loving attention is reading literature, like reading great novels and, and, and watching great films or, or, or reading great poems. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why that's really powerful is because 
we're often trying to reconstruct the inner lives of other people, but we do it in a very haphazard way. We think like they just did this thing and this is how it impacts me. And, you know, this must be sort of the reason we have this very sort of simplistic theory, but in literature, you're presented with the external actions of a person, but also their, their entire inner life, the, the richness of their inner life often. And this can help you get outside of you know, the way that you see the world and, and really have access to other people's experience in deep and important ways. One of the books, the novels that we talk about in that chapter and, and that has had a, a huge impact on both Megan's life and my life, but in very different ways, is The Road by Cormac McCarthy. You know, in my case... I read The Road when I was in college and I was kind of, you know, just trying to sort out life and think like, uh, which direction do I want to sort of go in in my career, in my life and that sort of thing. And the depiction of fatherhood, the access to the sort of characteristic feelings that a father has for, you know, his child, his son in this case, especially, you know, in the extreme circumstances, the kind of apocalyptic end of the world circumstances that are depicted in that novel, just struck something in me and, and really made it sort of an ideal. It sort of uh, was an exemplary kind of way of, of living and approaching the world that, you know, it was that moment as I was reading this that I thought like, gosh, like that is the kind of inner life that I would absolutely love to have with my own children. I would love to be a father. So I, I think, you know, reading literature, just, just, you know, picking up novels, especially if the the protagonists of the characters are are very different from you and have very different life experiences. It's just another way that you can cultivate this attentiveness to the, the the way that different people approach the world. No, I love the road. I read it once a year. Destroys me every time. I sob mm. like a, yeah. a baby, and I'm like, you read it on Christmas Eve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, gather around, gather children. around, children. No, I start like hugging my kids, and they're like, "What's wrong with you, Dad?" And they're like, no. "We we just did an episode with the Cormac McCarthy uh, scholar. We talked about the road, and I oh, nice. I broke down. I started crying mm. when it." The, the last scene about carrying the fire. Oh, geez. I'm, gonna, oh, I'm getting choked up now. Um, so in this also have, have this cultivating this loving attention. This goes back to how can you have these, these really live debates, moral philosophical debates without them, you know, descending to acrimony. Well, if you bring that loving attention to the conversation, people can sense that and they're going to, it disarms them. Maybe not right away. I mean, a lot of people think, well, if I just do this and like people, like Megan was saying, it's something that happens over time. People can get that you really you really care about them, and you you care about the the relationship, and because you care about the relationship, you can have these really hard discussions without worrying about the relationship deteriorating. Absolutely, I think that's right. If you want a good reputation for being, I think, good at this form of philosophical attention, you want people to think you're a little bit weird. Now, Socrates <laughs> is their great like mascot for this because every time people people are always commenting when they're in conversations with Socrates, like, man, this got weird, or this is surprising. And I think if you if you care about this dimension of your philosophical life with your family members or friends or coworkers, you want them to be thinking, huh, I didn't know where, exactly where that was going to go. All right, so be weird. Like you want to throw people off. So the final part you discuss in the book is how do you balance action and contemplation? And I, one of the things I'm drawn to Nicomachean, you know, Aristotelian virtue ethics is it's very practical because it's just like it has it, it can help you answer questions about what to do in just sort of a work a day. Like it answers those, you know, Tuesday morning questions, right? It's like what am I supposed to do at work or when the kids are, you know, getting kicked out of school? I mean, virtue ethics can help with, help with that, but. Aristotle also thought, okay, that's important, but he doesn't think action is the most important. He thought contemplation was really important. 
so how do you how do you balance the two? What what did Aristotle have to say about that? Aristotle is really he's really perplexed by this question. You get you read the Nicomachean Ethics, like you said, Brad, and the the first eight chapters of the book that we've got are pretty practical, and he and he builds it as a practical guide to happiness through philosophy. But he gets to the end and he's like, I don't think I've captured what happiness is for humans. And he, he thinks back to his teacher, Plato, who thought that attention and contemplation and understanding the world are really important dimensions of what it is for creatures like us to be who we are. And, and Aristotle kind of is like, you know, he's thinking about how he can reconcile that with everything he said about developing courage and generosity and friendships. The way we think about this really, you know, age old problem in virtue ethics is if you, if you think that action alone is going to help you achieve eudaimonia, there are going to be three kinds of problems that are going to be very hard for you to solve. First, if you only pursue a life of action, you face this problem of sometimes your best laid, most intentional, well-reasoned projects are still going to fail. You're going to have this really awesome idea for a project at work, and then a global pandemic is going to come around, and you're never going to be able to complete that project. So if you if you tie your happiness entirely to the life of action, there's going to be parts of it that are extraordinarily vulnerable to things outside of your control, which you know sucks if it's something as important as the meaning of your life on the line. Second thing that the life of action is going to fall short on is if you succeed in all of your projects. So you think that developing courage and generosity and friendships are the the crux of the good life. What happens when your friends die? What happens when you've invested yourself thoroughly in raising children and family life, but then you've succeeded and your children move away and start their own families, or you've invested yourself so thoroughly in finding the common good at work, but then you retire. How, what's going to backstop or be your goal that you're searching for after that if you've only ever been pursuing the life of action? And then finally, and something Aristotle spends a lot of time on at the end of the book, is this idea that there's something special about humans and the fact that we ask these philosophical questions to begin with. We wonder about things. We analyze things. We notice metaphors or similarities in things. And a lot of that noticing and thinking sometimes has nothing to do with what we're going to plan next. That part of us needs to be fed and nurtured, and that's our contemplative part. So the challenge, and, and there's a reason why we save this till near the end of the book, the challenge for somebody who feels like they're really starting to get eudaimonia, the good life in their sights, is to try to figure out how they're going to incorporate this continuous, strange, distinctively human thinking, attending activity into all of the really goal and other people focused good life practices that, they, uh, that they've learned to pursue. And one of the ways you suggest adding some more contemplation into your day is doing the examine of St. Ignatius. And there's a lot of different ways you can do it. It can work for you if you're a theist or not a theist. And we actually have an article about that on our site that we'll link to in the show notes. Well, Megan, Paul, this has been a great conversation. There's so much more we could talk about. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? So our book comes out on January 4th, and you can buy it on the Penguin website or Amazon or Barnes & Noble, Target. There's also an audio book if you like to do your philosophy when you're in the car. And for your podcast listeners, they very well might like to listen to philosophy. And then, of course, you, know, you can Google us. Look at God in the Good Life at the University of Notre Dame if you want to see what we teach here. And uh, we're just so excited to hear from people who are 
trying to build some more intentional philosophical practices into their into their lives this year. Well, Megan Sullivan, Paul Blasco, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so thanks, much, Brett. Brett. My guests they were Megan Sullivan and Paul Blasco. They're the co-authors of the book, The Good Life Method. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Make sure to check out our show notes at aom.is slash goodlife where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles and other years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support until next time is Brett McKay reminding all the listening to podcast but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.